Hello, good afternoon, everyone. We'll let folks join and then we will get started very soon. Okay. All right, while we have some folks trickle in, I can get us started with some very brief uh, housekeeping. Um, this is uh, formatted as a webinar, so attendees are not able to turn on their video or audio. So rest assured, we cannot hear your dog in the background. Um, <laughs> you are in the right place to talk about legal issues facing um, transgender nonconforming and intersex youth and families in New York State. And my name is Chell Miller. I am the uh, events coordinator for the Government Law Center at Albany Law School. I will be here in the background making sure everything works. Um, so let us know in the Q&A if things don't work on your end, and I will troubleshoot it with you. And I'm pleased to introduce Judge Leslie Stein, uh, director of the Government Law Center. I'll pass it to you, Judge. Thank you, Chill, and thank you to everyone uh, participating and uh, who have worked so hard to bring this program to you. Um, I want to welcome you to the second in a series of three programs on legal issues and rights concerning transgender, intersex, and gender nonconforming people in New York State. Today, we have a fabulous group of panelists who will address the legal issues facing TGNCI youth and families in New York. In the last program of this series on December 7th, panelists will discuss the future of legal rights and protections for TGNCI people in our state. We hope you will join us for that one as well. The moderator of today's program is Marianne Prissa, a 2019 graduate of Albany Law School. I came to know Marianne when she was a law student she was the only student I ever invited to serve as an intern in my chambers when I was a Court of Appeals judge, which she did with distinction. Marianne is currently a senior appellate court attorney at the Appellate Division Fourth Department, where she serves as director of the guardianship office. Before becoming a lawyer, she worked in the field of higher education for 10 years. In addition to her Juris Doctor degree, Marianne holds a bachelor's in English language and literature, a certificate in publishing, and a master's in public administration. And before I turn the program over to Marianne, just a couple of quick reminders. Uh, for those of you who are seeking CLE credit for this program, there will be two code words which will be given to you throughout the program, and you must submit your affidavit. And of course, you should submit your evaluation as well. Um, you will not have a, a access to the chat, but you will be able to ask questions through the Q&A function, um, which will be fielded later on during the program. So with that said, I now turn it over to Marianne and our panelists. Thank you so much, Judge, for that incredible welcome. I could not be uh, more honored to be serving as the moderator today. And I also, on a personal note, couldn't be more proud of my alma mater for hosting such an important panel and series of panels. So I just wanted to start with that. And with that, I will now briefly introduce each of our incredible speakers for the day. Bobby Hodgson is a supervising attorney and director of LGBTQ rights litigation 
at the New York Civil Liberties Union, where he works on statewide civil rights and civil liberties impact litigation. He first joined the NYCLU in 2013 and has since worked extensively on advocacy and litigation related to LGBTQ rights. Welcome, Bobby. Bria Brown-King is Director of Engagement at Interact, a national intersex-led policy advocacy organization. Bria coordinates the Interact Youth Program, which works to empower the next generation of intersex youth leaders aged 13 to 29, helping them develop their advocacy skills. The program also offers peer support for intersex youth through a collaboration with Interconnect. Welcome, Bria. Next, Julius Faulkner is the Transcare Program Coordinator at In Our Own Voices, an Albany-based organization which promotes the physical, mental, spiritual, political, cultural, and economic survival and growth of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities of color. Julius is a social worker who creates inclusive spaces which foster acceptance, understanding, and empowerment, and enable community members to embrace their authentic selves and their truth. Welcome, Julius. Lisa Campo Engelstein is the Director and Chair of Bioethics and Health Humanities and the Harris L. Kempter Chair in the Humanities and Medicine Professor at the University of Texas, Texas Medical Branch. She specializes in reproductive ethics, especially fertility preservation and male contraception, and feminist and queer bioethics. The BBC recognized her research as engendering a better future for women, naming her as one of the 100 inspiring and influential women of 2019. Welcome, Lisa. Finally, Joseph Williams, class of 2015, is a partner at Cops de Paula Silverman, where his primary focus is family law and assisted reproductive technology law. He represents transgender clients through the process of changing their names and gender markers on identity documents. He also works on custody matters involving conflicts among parents regarding their transgender children. Welcome, Vincent. Uh, so, you know, with that, we're going to start with a very broad, open-ended question here. Uh, would each of you share a little bit about yourselves in terms of your work, what issues you focus on, and really what motivates the work that you do with and for tra uh, transgender and gender nonconforming and intersect youth and families? And um, if anybody would like to start, feel free. I see Bobby might be shaking his head. <laughs> sure, Maria. Happy to start. Uh, and thanks for the intro. And, and uh, thanks to everyone for, for setting this up. Uh, it's a great uh, opportunity to talk about these really important issues. Uh, and I'm so excited to hear what all these panelists are going to are gonna say. Um, so yeah, very briefly, uh, as Marianne said, I work at the New York Civil Liberties Union. We are the state affiliate uh, of the ACLU in New York State, which means uh, you know I focus on all sorts of issues that uh, affect people who are currently in New York State. Um, and I came on originally as a, a Skadden Fellow in 2013, um, with a focus specifically at the time on uh, issues affecting LGBTQ youth in schools mostly. Um, that was a time when folks might remember 
Um, New York State had recently passed the Dignity for All Students Act, which is a, a sort of robust anti-discrimination law that was specifically targeted at addressing hostile school environments and discrimination um, that affected students in schools. And for the first time, uh, had a, a robust set of protections, um, in particular on the basis of gender identity, discrimination, and gender expression. Um, you know, from that work, uh, I've participated for the last 10 years now at the NYCLU uh, in a bunch of our integrated advocacy on behalf of LGBTQ people broadly, and specifically with a focus on youth, uh, oftentimes youth in schools, um, and then also more recently, just because it's an issue that affects so many people here in New York and where there's a lot of work to be done, um, issues affecting people who are in carceral settings, um, so prisons, jails, um, youth detention facilities, et cetera. Um, some of the most persistent and really egregious discrimination that happens is affecting people in those settings. Um, so, you know, very briefly, an integrated advocacy model that we sort of uh, employ at the NYCLU um, is using our litigation to make sure that it is in support of and in community with um, and led by people who are sort of ineffected communities um, that the, the cases we bring that may be seeking to either strike down a policy or establish a good legal interpretation um, of what our existing, for example, anti-discrimination laws might, might mean um, is done in service with and alongside public education efforts. We re regularly release sort of reports centering the stories of trans youth in particular, um, LGBTQ people more broadly, um, that's done hand in hand with legislative advocacy or advocacy with policymakers to be passing or updating regulations, um, et cetera. Um, and we have a, a broad sort of field presence as well. So people working directly with grassroots and community members on the ground across the state to ensure that we are you know, using our resources in a way that best supports folks in the community um, and that is hopefully creating sort of a multi-pronged parallel set of paths to get to um, the, the hoped for end result, which is to, you know, improve people's lived experience, to eliminate discrimination in, in, in as many ways as we can, uh, and to make sure folks feel safe, secure, um, and able to access things like healthcare um, and an education in a way that's, you know, on equal footing with and equitable. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we've made some progress in the last 10 years. There's so much more to be done. Excited to talk about it in this panel. Thank you so much, Bobby. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm happy to have you next. Um, so I work as the director of engagement at New York Advocates for Intersex We are a national intersex advocacy organization. We were founded in 2006. We were founded as a law and policy organization. That's the bulk of uh, the work that we do, pushing for local and national policy developments, often that protect the rights of. People born with variations in their physical sex characteristics, also known as intersex traits. Uh, we also do um, a lot of media work where we uh, work to make sure that uh, intersex people are accurately and appropriately represented in the media. And uh, as was mentioned in my bio, uh, we also have a youth leadership and development program where we uh, work to support the next generation of intersex youth leaders. And uh, I am a proud product of that program. Uh, I got involved in intersex advocacy work in 2018. Um, in 2019, I had the opportunity to be the first openly uh, intersex person to speak about intersex people on the steps of the Supreme Court, uh, specifically around the Bostock decision and uh, why intersex people deserve to be protected from workplace discrimination. I wasn't sure if it was we get three minutes each or three minutes in total. So I'm just going to leave it there. And <laughs> thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. Thanks, Bria.
Joe. Uh, Hi guys, thanks so much for, for having me on the panel. My name is Joe Williams. Um, my, like Marianne said, I am an attorney. Um, my, I, my law firm is Cops to Paula Silverman. We're, we're located in Albany, but we serve clients really all over upstate New York. Um, my practice is primarily focused on family law. And, uh, you know, specifically as it relates to the program today, I represent a lot of clients who are members of the LGBTQ community, um, and particularly a number of, of transgender clients, both in proceedings seeking to legally change their name or sex designation and or sex designation on identity documents, as well as a lot of work in family court representing um, trans parents who have uh, or are going through sort of litigated custody proceedings regarding their children or parents of transgender children who are going through custody disputes, um, you know, regarding their kids. Um, so it's so a lot of, of time litigating those types of issues in, in family courts in upstate New York. Um, and it's always super important to me when I am representing either transgender clients or parents of transgender children to always try to be as mindful as possible of all the specific issues and dynamics facing the transgender community that are different maybe than, um, you know, what we would encounter in a otherwise, you know, regular custody case, so to speak. Um, and so, so I'm very excited to have this panel. I'm very excited to be here today, you know, not only to share my experiences, but to hear from everyone else on this panel to sort of help give me some ideas of ways that I can better represent my clients. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, I just realized I'm like starting to take notes because I'm learning already. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait you're moderate. <laughs> hey, it's a good group. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Julius? Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for having me. Yes, my name is Julius Faulkner. And I just really appreciate the privilege of residing within a state where I'm able to work in a position that directly aligns with my identity as a Black man of transgender experience. As the Transcare Program Coordinator and their own voices, I relate to the journeys that so many individuals have faced in the transgender community. I have had to overcome various obstacles that have left me feeling voiceless, unheard, and erased. And all of this is to say that my identity is strongly intertwined with the work that I do. My background as a master's level social worker allows me to locate and provide diverse resources for my community while also empowering and educating folks on how to become their own advocates and leaders. My job also involves listening to those who are impacted by the laws and policies we will be discussing this afternoon and aiding the community in its navigation. So thank you so much for having me today. Thank you, Julius. Lisa. Thanks for having me as well. I'm Lisa Campbell Engelstein. Um, I am based in Texas now, but I lived in Albany for most of my life. Um, I am a bioethicist by trade, and my research is sort of at the intersection of reproductive ethics and queer and feminist ethics. And so a lot of my research that's revel uh, that is pertinent for today has to do with fertility preservation for trans and intersex youth and also adults, but especially for youth, because there's all sorts of ethical issues that are raised there. Um, so I will leave it at that, but I'm looking forward to joining you all. Thank you so much, Lisa. And so actually that, that's the perfect transition. Um, this next question sort of gets at both 
the broad and the specific all at once. And um, what do each of you see as some of the most pressing issues raised right now within the gender, transgender, gender nonconforming, um, intersex youth and family communities that you work with? Because obviously there are many, but are there any in particular that you feel should really be brought to the forefront um, during this time, this webinar? I'm happy to start. Um, so I, like I said before, I do a lot of work in family court. And so really my background is, is sort of from a litigation standpoint and with these particular topics. And so when I'm representing clients, the biggest, um, you know, I don't know if obstacle is the word, but the biggest sort of, of thing that I, I, you know, have to, to contend with when representing, um, clients or parents of, of children who are members of these communities is just a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge and sensitivity by the court system. Um, not only judges, you know, judges, other attorneys, you know, opposing counsel um, in custody cases, attorneys for children are always assigned to represent children. And so making sure, contending with, you know, whoever gets assigned as the attorney to represent the child in the case, are they familiar with these, these types of issues? And so I think that, you know, there, there's all sorts of issues in any custody case, right? There are complicated cases in, in, in any sort of situation, but then when you have a, a client, a parent, or a, a child who is, is transgender, gender nonconforming, there are sort of nuances and issues that courts may or may not be super familiar with. Um, so there's a lot of additional education that needs to go into my representation of those of you know those clients and parents of those types of children I want to make sure that you know the the court has a full understanding of maybe not a full understanding but a better understanding at least of the dynamics. Um, you know, for example, I've, I've had cases where I've represented parents of transgender children, and typically the, the dynamic, you know, what one parent is, is supportive and one parent may not be supportive, and you're in sort of a, a custody battle, so to speak, of these two diverging points of view. And part of, you know, advocating for, for my clients is making sure that the court understands what the issues are, what we're even talking about, right? Because if we're talking about gender affirming for a child or gender blockers or some of those types of things, the court may have no idea what we're talking about if they don't have no experience with these issues. And so before we even get to like the legal analysis, a lot of it is sort of educating the court about what are we talking about? What are the issues here? Why is this important? Um, and a lot of that I find com I, I you have to bring in experts in a lot of, of cases because you know advocate for one of the parents can only do so much to sort of educate the court. So a lot of times it involves bringing in social workers or um, you know scholars, people who who practice in this area on a regular basis, um, whether that's a provider for the child or for one of the parties, or whether it's a you know an expert that is retained to come in to talk about some of these issues, but. You know, one of the big obstacles that I see is just sort of making sure that these issues are, are understood 
before we can even get to sort of some of the legal issues. And that is a separate and apart from like any prejudices or biases that a judge may have. That's not something that we can necessarily fix. But a judge who just may not understand these issues going into the case and sort of making sure that we're on sort of a, a you know, a level of, of everyone knows what terminology we're using, everyone understands what pronouns we're using, sort of some kind of, you know, more basic types of things that to, to make sure that everyone kind of, um, so anyway, that's, that's one of the biggest, I always try to explain to my clients, you know, this is, you know, before we even get to you know, talking about the legal issues of like legal custody and physical custody and all of that, you know, who, what judge are we going to get? Is this judge going to have a clue about what we're talking about and how much sort of preliminary educational prep work are we going to need to do to make sure that the court is, is sort of ending of the dynamics that we're going to be dealing with? I see uh, both Bria and Julius are doing a lot of head shaking. I don't know if you would like to weigh in uh, on anything that Joe just said or, or take it in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. I think I'll, I'll just start by weighing in and adding to that um, because I think, you know, uh, when it comes to intersex issues, um, you know, even though intersex people make up nearly 2% of the population, um, there's still this issue around intersex erasure and uh, as Joe was mentioning lack of awareness and many people still don't 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 know we exist don't believe that we actually exist even though I am here live in the flesh um you know we are still unfortunately largely invisible even uh among the uh broader LGBTQ plus community we're often left out of conversations about things uh that also affect us like reproductive uh healthcare, reproductive reproductive rights anti-trans um uh, legislation and workplace discrimination and you know, again, even though we're affected by these things as well. And so we're not only fighting for our fundamental uh, human rights to be protected, we also have to raise awareness about our existence and remind people to include us in their fight for liberation. And uh, some of that in erasure is, is intentional due to anti-intersex bias. Um, people, you know, fear what they don't know, they don't understand. And unfortunately, people don't understand intersex bodies and that intersex bodies are not broken. Uh, you know, society really made us believe that there's only one way to be normal, um, but intersex people, people, I think, prove that um, that that's not true. And unfortunately, there's just still so much fear and stigma associated with having an intersex body that doesn't neatly fit in society, society's, um, you know, the boxes that society likes to place us all in. And instead of inter, uh, accepting intersex bodies as they are, doctors have um, throughout history tried to quote unquote fix us by literally erasing our intersex traits. And uh, so one of the uh, main issues that we focus on here at, at Interact is uh, the early uh, surgical interventions performed on intersex children, uh, oftentimes without their consent. These are procedures that are often performed on children before the age of two. Uh, they are forced to undergo these non-consensual surgeries to have their intersex traits erased, really because of assumptions that are being made about what type of body a child might choose to have when they get older. Um, these procedures are often not life-saving and are associated with a lot of physical risks, such as sterilization, uh, urinary incontinence, and loss of sexual sensation and function. There are also many psychological risks as well. And so... At Interact, um, you know, we're here to let people know that intersex people deserve to have bodily autonomy. Uh, we deserve to make decisions about our own health care and, you know, the cost of letting uh, doctors and parents make that decision for us and get it wrong is far too high, um, especially when these procedures are often irreversible. Um, 
And especially if we never would have chosen to have the procedure done in the first place, if we, uh, if the decision was ours to make. And then the last issue I'll just mention is uh, the, the poor health outcome, outcomes and the lack of competent care available for intersex adults. Um, so again, oftentimes we're forced into these early interventions as children that come with lifelong risks, but then there's not enough mental or physical health care um, affirming healthcare available for us when we become adults. Um, we are, healthcare providers are often either unfamiliar uh, with intersex issues or they just don't know how to provide affirming care for us. And so as patients, as clients, we're often required to, to do the labor of educating our providers in order for us to get the care that we need. And so, um, that puts a lot of pressure on us as individuals to be, you know, fully informed self-advocates. And um, I just don't think that that's fair. That's weird. Definitely. I think, uh, you know, to echo um, Bria, that New York State does continue to uphold its reputation as, you know, the birthplace of the modern movement for LGBTQ rights, right? We have uh, the governor who signed the Safe Haven Law, which protects access to transition-related medical care for transgender minors. However, this hasn't changed the fact of how many LGBT, anti-LGBTQ laws were introduced into state legislatures in 2023. And more than half of them targeted trans youth and nearly 100,000 transgender youth live in states that ban access to healthcare, sports, or school bathrooms in 2023. And laws referring to gender-affirming therapies as child abuse weaponizes identities that are really meant to be celebrated and included. Um, and the implication of anti-transgender legislation has a devastating impact on the social and emotional well-being of transgender and gender non-conforming youth, as Bria had brought up. And locally, youth are struggling to feel accepted both at school and at home. And the lack of diverse education materials that are inclusive of transgender youth in schools creates feelings of isolation. Teachers and administrators are often lacking in trans-inclusive training, leading to issues with bullying, which impacts disciplinary records and attendance. And regarding healthcare, though there are laws allowing legal access for youth to receive gender-affirming medical care, doctors still remain gatekeepers, and local community members have been turned away from doctors on the basis of, be, of them feeling um, unknowledgeable to serve the medical needs of the transgender, gender non-conforming community, or have experienced being stripped of their hormones with little to no notice, forced to undergo invasive or unnecessary medical testing, and humiliating practices like intrusion of multiple medical students while nude and without consent. So I want to give Bobby and Lisa, if you'd like to weigh in on any of this or uh, take it in a separate direction as well, that, that of course, you may do so. Um, and if you, yeah, go ahead, please. Sure. I'm happy to go very quickly. I mean, I'll echo everything that's been said. I think these are really important points and, and highlight that, that some of the most pressing issues facing trans youth and their families today. Um, I, I think, um, you know, on the issue of what Julia Julius just raised, Part of the, the challenge we face in New York, sort of uniquely, not uniquely, but sort of different than, than in other uh, jurisdictions, is we, we do have a lot of sort of good or model or sort of like best in the country policies and or laws in place. And they're written down, and that's great. 
Um, so the problems we often see people facing is, and, and that's a, an achievement to be celebrated and to be treasured and to be defended. Um, but a lot of what we see is people's lived experience not aligning. Uh, I think, Julius, you gave a lot of great examples with the promise of, of good policies or good laws that are in place or not having access to be able to enforce those good laws and policies. Um, and so, you know, the types of discrimination that are so persistent and common facing youth, you know, in schools, being denied access to facilities, being misgendered, not having their, their names respected, not having access to gender affirming care or inclusive um, versions of, for example, sex education, uh, curricula, like these are things that are happening all over and it is a matter of finding better and more robust ways to enforce the rights that exist, to strengthen them and specify them, you know, to the extent that's necessary um, and find ways for people to feel empowered in their own communities um, and sort of, you know, expand the base of people who are able to enforce what should be, you know, theirs under the law. Um, so I think that's a, a pressing challenge that sort of cuts across a bunch of different areas where discrimination is really persistent and people's lived experience is just not consistent with what our law requires. And I know we'll we'll talk about more specific examples, so I'll stop talking. Lisa. My experiences are different here in Texas. It is horrific. I don't know how else to put it. So I know the focus is on New York, so let's keep it there. Um, and I'm glad that there are places in the world that have much better laws and, and just overall viewpoints. <laughs> so thank you. So uh, before we, we turn to the next topic, I think I, I just wanted to comment, you know, it's interesting, I'm sitting here seriously taking notes. Uh, and th there seems to be this tension, right? What I keep hearing, what everyone's saying is, okay, we have this fight to prove we exist. And then sucks. And then over here, we're trying to work in the confines of the the current laws, policies, right? And and it just seems like those two things to have such a strong tension between these literal codified words, policies, structures, and we exist back and forth and back and forth. And it, it seems like everybody brought that up, right? Even Joe, you know, the first thing that you mentioned was coming into a courtroom and kind of looking at the lay of the land and saying. Does anyone even know what pronouns do we know? You know, sort of the very basic things before you even get to the legal analysis. Um, and so I, I thought it was important to kind of highlight that. And ever the educator, I can't help. I think I'm probably going to take some notes and, and pass them along at the end of this. Um, but now moving from sort of out here into a little bit closer to the ground. So specifically individual rights. Think, uh, issues around healthcare decision making and this concept of informed consent and what that even means. Um, so I wanted to start with you, Joe. You've worked with youth who are seeking to change their name and their sex designation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like in New York State and what that process entails? Yeah, absolutely. So, so happily, New York. One of the the great examples of New York having good laws, better laws than other places is the Gender Recognition Act, which passed a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, one of the, the primary things that it, it sort of simplified and streamlined the process to have legally change one's name and sex designation, um, you know, on a, on a legal document, which then enables them to be able to then update all of their identity documents so everything is congruent all you know the name chain the name is listed accurately on all of their documents sex designation is listed accurately on all of their documents so everything aligns um so the the process it, it's it's a relatively simple process it's a matter of filing a petition 
Um, the petition seeks, you know, court leave to legally change one's name and or sex designation. Um, if it's an adult that is making the application, they file it on their own behalf. If it's being filed on behalf of a, a child, um, the child's parent wants to actually bring the petition on the minor's behalf. Um, you know, when it goes to court, it goes in front of a judge, the judge reviews the petition. Um, and, you know, there's not really a lot of discretion, which is, which is great. I mean, the court doesn't decide whether I, I think that it's correct or appropriate to grant this name change. If it's an adult, there's no discretion because an adult can change their name to whatever they want. And then for a minor, as long as both the parent, as long as both parents are supportive, then there's typically no issue. Where there are sometimes conflicts in these types of cases is if again, going back to the example of we have one supportive parent and one non-supportive parent, um, if the a petition is filed on behalf of a, you know, let's say a 13-year-old child to change her name and sex designation by the supportive parent um, and the other parent objects. In that scenario, it would then have to go to, to court to be litigated and the court would hold a best interest hearing. Um, and that standard is as loose as it sounds. You know, the court has to, you know, make a determination based on the wisdom of the court. Do they think that it's in the best interest of the child to grant this petition or not based on, you know, what are one parent's reasons? What are the other parent's reasons against? Um, and again, like the examples that I gave a few minutes ago with the custody case, it sometimes involves a lot of educating the court as to why this is so important for this particular child. Mm -hmm. And that could involve needing expert testimony to talk about the potential impacts if this court doesn't grant the petition and why it's important not only that it's done, but that it's done now. Um, the, the court has the ability to assign an attorney to represent the child in these types of cases too. It doesn't happen automatically like it would in a custody case, but mm -hmm. um, so, you know, most of the time, in my practice at least, these are, are relatively uncontested, non-litigated types of proceedings. And that was the idea to make an easier process for people to have access to this type of affirming legal care. Um, there are, you know, certainly cases, you know, where, where, where it is contested and, and unfortunately then it, then it does require litigation. Um, one of the things, you know, one of the nice things about the Gender Rec Recognition Act is that it eliminated the requirement that notices of these types of name changes and sex designation changes be published in a newspaper, which used to be required in the old days, a few years ago before this law changed. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it also, you know, while it makes the process easier, it also makes it more private. Um, because, you know, I think that privacy and, you know, the, the you know, we, we'll, we'll talk about like consent and, and all of those types of things, but hand in hand with that goes the ability to keep this information confidential, keep it private, not sort of exposed unnecessarily. And so the Gender Recognition Act removes the publication requirement, which helps. It also adds additional protections to be able to have these records sealed. Um, when you file anything with the county clerk's office, it's a matter of public record unless it's sealed by the court. Um, and so that means, you know, anyone can go down to the county clerk's office, can pull up the records online, find them through a Google search. Um, and so if you're, you know, if you're filing a name change proceeding on behalf of your 13 year old child, you may not want to broadcast to everyone who has access to Google that you are, you know, looking to, to do this. And it's, it's a, you know, there's a lot of dangers associated with, you know, being potentially outed through having this type of information available through, you know, public access. 
Um, so the Gender Recognition Act strengthens a lot of those protections um, and sort of streamlines this process, not only for adults, but for parents who want to obtain this type of, of legal care for their children. And just a follow-up on that, Joe, with the petition, I mean, I'm assuming that that, could, that also was filed in NYSEF electronically as well? Yes. Right? That which is all sort of the problem, uh, because right. you know it's a it's an electronic filing system. It's once something is available online, it's hard to to get it get it off or get it back. Um, and so one of the things that happens in you know if you it, if you request this, you can request that the records be sealed immediately so that they never become a matter of public record. Um, and so while the case is pending, while the judge is deciding the petition, the records are sealed and not readily accessible. Um, but then I also always request on behalf of my clients that the records be permanently sealed so that going forward, there's no, um, you know, no public, you know, it's, it's accessible to the parties, it's accessible to the child, but it's not accessible to anyone else. That's a great practitioner point. Um, so thank you for that. And shifting, so moving away from that towards now issues specifically around healthcare decision-making and informed consent. Uh, Bobby, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what New York law says with respect to consent to medical care, such as uh, exams, medications, or other procedures. Yes, um, I can do a bit of a speed round. I think folks should be aware this is a complicated area of law. Um, the NYCLU actually has a publication called Teenagers Healthcare in the Law that we've been publishing updated versions of for quite some time that provides a little bit more in-depth and a user-friendly version that is good for, I think, both lawyers and um, people seeking to access healthcare themselves. Um, but like a basic framework, right? There, to, to start off, there, there is no New York-specific law that grants minors the right to consent to gender-affirming care themselves. Um, it, it doesn't exist. So the framework we work within is that there are certain types of minors who have the ability to consent to healthcare. Um, so if you are in this category, you can consent to your own healthcare, and that involves informed consent, which is sort of a separate idea. Um, and then there are certain types of healthcare that all minors have the ability to consent to on their own behalf. Um, so, you know, to start with. Anybody getting healthcare in New York needs to be able to give informed consent. Um, there's no minimum age for giving it. You know, it is the idea that the person receiving the care um, understands the treatment and is able to then agree to it. Um, th this is something that an individual healthcare provider has to determine whether they think the person is able to give informed consent. Um, but you can imagine that with different ages of minors, this is sort of a sliding scale about people's ability to give informed consent to anything. Um, and that's to receive any sort of health care. Um, separate and apart from that, certain minors who can consent to their own health care um, as though they were adults um, are emancipated minors. Um, you know, someone who's living apart uh, from their uh, parents or and is financially independent. That's like a legal process. Um, married minors, uh, minors who have children themselves, um, minors who are in carceral settings and minors who fall under the definition under our laws of either homeless or runaway youth. And these are two categories that actually affect a lot of uh, TGNCI kids um, because uh, uh, you know, a disproportionate number of homeless and runaway youth um, may be experiencing you know, hostility in their family and, and may be part of this population. So if you fall under the legal definition of any of those categories, you are then able to consent to your own 
healthcare, including gender affirming care. Um, separate and apart from that, there are certain types of care that any minor can consent to in a confidential way and on their own. Um, it includes uh, reproductive health care. It includes testing and treatment for certain STIs. Um, it includes care for substance use disorders. Um, it includes mental health care in certain contexts. So for uh, many kids who are seeking gender affirming care, the thing that they are often able to consent to on their own, regardless of whether they fall under one of those categories, is like talk therapy um, that is given in the context of what's legally defined as mental health care. Um, but it often does not include and sort of bumps up against any sort of medical intervention, access to prescription, access to hormones, things like that. Those are the types of things that unless you fall within one of the categories of youth uh, and minors who are able to consent to their own care, you need um, at least one parent to be consenting um, to you to get access to those types of medical care and health care. Um, so th there are a lot of other details, but I think that's a fair overview of the landscape that we're in right now in New York. Before we get to uh, Julius and Bria, I want to shift to you, Lisa, and just to kind of get your, well, I have a specific question, but I wanted to start first with what are, what are you thinking right now? You know, you're hearing all these things and from your perspective, what 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 bells are going off for you? What are you hearing? Well, uh, you know, just what Bobby was talking about, this is an area of research of mine that we allow minors to make certain decisions and gender affirming care is not one. And I've tried to make certain arguments in the academic literature that hopefully will then translate over that say this should be considered a type of, of health care that minors can consent to without having it necessarily fall under the umbrella of mental health care because it's all it's problematic then to just label you know all trans kids as, as having mental disorders. So um, you know this is an area that there has been some scholarship in in, in bioethics, but not nearly enough. So I might want to talk to you afterwards, Bobby, about you know like how on the ground this could happen. Um, I mean, because the other interesting thing is other types of uh, healthcare that affect um, trans and intersex kids most are really hard for kids to get on their own, like fertility preservation. So if they want to undergo fertility preservation before undergoing gender affirming care, they can't sign off on that in most states. And again, you can tell me about New York, um, you know, by themselves. So why don't we allow that um, when we allow other types of reproductive care? So those are some of my initial thoughts. And if I if I may, uh, just a follow up on that, you said that there are, you know, there are several arguments in uh, academic scholarship that you've made. And would you mind briefly touching on some of what those arguments are? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, what I already said, but just like making an argument that a lot of the reason we have, uh, we allow minors to make certain public de uh, decisions is public health reasons, right? We don't want to spread STIs, we're concerned about these sorts of things, so we allow, and also that these things are stigmatized. So we allow them in those types of cases. How can we move forward with this? I mean, I, I'm concerned about labeling trans and intersex care as stigmatized, because I don't want that to reinforce the stigma already there. But if it has to do with sex and gender, that's already stigmatized in our, in our country, right? So if we just put it under that umbrella, then it should be treated like other types of care that kids get. And I mean, the other thing I've, I've compared to is that, you know, cis folks are the ones who get most of the gender affirming care. I mean, cis folks get, you know, um, uh, re breast reconstruction following mastectomy, 
you know, for young boys who may experience enlarged breasts, this boys who experience large breasts, we have treatments for that because they may feel like it makes them uncomfortable because of their gender identity. So, I mean, we're doing this kind of care on kids already. Um, and so like, why are we singling out trans kids only? Right. There, this is a conversation I've had several times with some really good friends about, you know, what exactly, what does gender affirming care mean and who gets to create the definition and for whom does it apply? And, and when does it not deploy, apply and why? Uh, and that, I think that's an, an incredibly important point to bring up because uh, it does seem that we we refer to it over here, but not over here and sometimes here. Um, and so I thank you for, for bringing that up. And then kind of taking it now over to Bria and Julius, you know, we're talking about, okay, here's how you file a petition pursuant to CPLR, blah, 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 and you go in and you have a filing fee, and then here's the other issues we have. You know, what are you seeing in terms of, of the individuals that you work with, and how does this all come together? Like, similar to what I said to Lisa, like, what are you hearing when we're all talking about this? What's going off for you? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we hear from a lot of young people and also uh, some parents at times that they are not being informed. Uh, there is no informed consent. And uh, when a lot of these procedures are being performed on, on children who are before the age of two, they can't participate in the conversation about their health care. And oftentimes, I know it was the case for my parents, um, is it really informed if you just don't if the information being presented isn't presented in a way that's accessible and you're not fully being fully made aware of like the risk and the harms associated with certain procedures like how can you like i would like to to explore the definition of informed because that doesn't sound like informed consent to me and i know you know informed consent and whether or not minors have the capacity to make decisions about their health care you know, as we know, is a question that also exists outside of intersex care. And these are questions that I think society have sort, has sort of been grappling with since, you know, at least the 70s, because it makes me think of uh, two Supreme Court cases, the first being uh, Parham v. Uh, J.R. from 1979, where a group of young folks brought a class action lawsuit against a uh, Georgia State uh, mental institution that they were being treated in because they argued that their right to due process was violated, arguing that their parents can't commit, parents can't commit children to mental institutions unjustifiably. And unfortunately, the court rejected that class action because, and I quote, uh, they didn't want to intrude into the parent-child relationship in the second case, also from 1979, uh, Bilotti v. Baird, um, Baird uh, where the court ultimately Route that minors don't need um, parental consent to have an abortion, which was a reversal of their previous decision stating that it's unconstitutional to prohibit parent uh, parental consent, essentially because minors are vulnerable, immature, incapable of making decisions. But interestingly, they are mature enough to be forced into parenthood. And again, I'm not a lawyer, but I spend a lot of time learning and researching and thinking about this stuff because I shouldn't have to have a law degree or a medical degree to have access to this knowledge and information that could directly impact my lively, my livelihood and my access to care. And so really grateful to have really smart lawyers working at Interact um, who can help me understand a lot of this information. Uh, but, you know, the doctrine of parental consent, I believe is and I witnessed directly in my work is still the framework uh, that we use here in the U.S. regarding healthcare decisions about minors care, because it's presumed that the parents act 
in the best in interest of their children. And uh, as Bobby was yeah. mentioning, there are of course exceptions where uh, parental discretion um, may be replaced with another mechanism such as the court or allowing a minor to make their own decisions. Uh, of course, um, you know, as Bobby mentioned, this is the case with things like STI testing and treatment, um, of course, depending on the state you live in. So um, yeah, sorry, I feel like I'm talking really fast and not breathing. So apologies oh, for that. <laughs> Julia, yeah. do you have anything you want to add there? Yeah, I thought that there was like a perfect segue um, to touch on healthcare delivery and how um, the experience isn't, equi isn't equitable across all populations and that there's a growing concern about um, the experiences of gender variant folks seeking care. Um, so locally, a parent um, was refused from receiving hormone replacement therapy for their teenage youth. Um, and this ultimately led to this teen having increased symptoms um, stemming from gender dysphoria. And this impacted their ability to focus during class, socialize with their peers, and attend hobbies such as participating on the basketball team. Um, and of course, class attendance. But fortunately, a friend connected them to trans care, and we were able to connect them to a doctor who was associated with WPATH and educated them on everything from patient rights to various aspects of the medical transition process. And we were also able to provide him with information on how to bind appropriately and binding materials to support his empowerment of sports participation. And this, I think, is a great example of the positives of a multidisciplinary approach, which would lead to a greater alignment of equitable care. Yeah, that's such a great point. I was I was thinking that um, in preparation for this panel is about the everyone's bringing such a different perspective, but those perspectives, you know, one's doing what another one does not do, and someone else is doing what someone else doesn't do, which really brings together a whole experience rather than something that's just truncated and compartmentalized. Um, yeah. <laughs> Before we shift gears again, I just wanted to leave room for any other closing or final thoughts on uh, healthcare decision-making, informed consent, individual rights, anything that you think you really want our audience to know today or to think about. The only other thing that I was thinking of while, while Bria was talking is, you know, we, just like we mentioned before, how sometimes there's a difference between like what the law says and what people's experiences are. I think that a lot of it sometimes comes down to um, like individual providers too, unfortunately. Like, and so it's not always, mm -hmm. you know, this is how it's supposed to be, or this is what the policies currently are. I, you know, like the most recent case I, I can think of is I, you know, I was representing um, a, a mother of a, of a transgender child and the, um, the mother was fully supportive of her daughter starting hormones, but the clinic basically took the policy of, we won't do anything regardless of having parental consent, unless we have both parents consenting. And so that is what brought us to court to, you know, the only way that was to have a court order directing this clinic to, you know, to essentially the, the objective was to award her sole custody of the, have, you know, to sort of eliminate the need for the, for the parental consent of the other parent, because this particular clinic took the position of um, parents' consent is not enough. We need to hear from both parents. I'm assuming it was, you know, it was a liability concern of, you know, this was a, unfortunately, very vocally other parent that we were dealing with. Um, but it was, you know, that that ended up bringing us into court on that particular case. So um, 
it's frustrating sometimes to, to say to clients, you know, this is what the law says, this is how it's supposed to work. Right. And then in practice, it isn't always as easy as it should be. And I suppose that that could also be the case for court by court, judge by judge as well, when you're in front of, you know, the idea of absolutely is also re very relevant here too. Yeah, did we have, forgive me, I, I'm, I'm learning so much that I'm, I'm missing things, but did we talk at all about the safe haven bill? I think this might be a good place to just briefly cover anything. Anybody would like to chime in on the safe haven bill in New York? Anything else? Other than New York has adopted it, right? That was in, I think in this past year, I, I don't know the details off the top of my head, but my understanding is that New York has adopted the safe haven bill. Well, I have a okay, word to share. Yeah, if you don't mind. <laughs> and I can also kind of give a very brief summary of what the Trans Safe Haven Act does. But first, yeah. our code word. Ah. So our first code word for those attorneys who are in our audience looking for continuing legal education credit is consent, uh, which is very much related to the ongoing discussion we're having. Again, that code word is consent. Uh, you should see it on your screen. Um, thank you for that. Um, and for just a very, very brief Kind of explanation of the Trans Safe Haven Act that was passed in 2023. And um, it essentially what it does is it makes New York State a sanctuary space for youth and families coming from other states to pursue gender affirming care in New York. So it prohibits um, New York State's law enforcement and courts from enforcing. Um, you know, laws from other states, as long as that gender affirming care is lawfully provided in New York State. So the bill updates several different acts like the Family Court Act, Civil Practice Law and Rules, Education Law, um, a, a variety of things, um, specifying that gender affirming care practiced in New York lawfully, which is all of the gender affirming care that's happening in New York State, um, Anyone who's traveling from other states, whether it's, you know, the parents supporting a young person, a young person coming on their own, um, it also protect, protects medical providers in New York State from being subject to other states' um, laws and bans around surrounding this care. Um, the full text of that bill is included in your program materials as well. Thanks. Thank you, Shell. Um... So now another giant topic of discourse and debate throughout the nation these days, schools and education. Um, my apologies, I'm getting a call. Bobby, uh, from your perspective as an attorney, keeping an eye on LGBTQ rights statewide and across the country, what are some of the challenges that transgender, nonconforming, or intersect youth encounter in educational settings and how do existing laws and regulations try to address them? So we were referencing specifically the human rights law, uh, NYSED guidance, things of that nature. My apologies to my phone. No, of course, yeah. So I, I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier. I think some of the most common forms of discrimination are not gonna be surprising to folks because it's discrimination that uh, a lot of people experience 
in different contexts, right? But in schools, it's about being denied access to facilities that are consistent with your gender identity, if that's what you want to access. It's about having people misgender you, not respect your name, your pronouns. It's about um, otherwise being harassed or discriminated against or have a hostile sort of environment on the basis of your gender identity or expression. Um, so happily in New York, Marianne alluded to this, we have laws that prohibit this type of discrimination from school districts. Um, you know, the way that those work and function is that we have a broad statement from our New York State human rights law that says you cannot discriminate in an educational setting on the basis of, and then it lists a series of protected categories. And happily and thankfully, our New York State human rights law explicitly includes gender identity and expression in that list of protected categories. What that means on the ground is like, okay, well, what constitutes prohibited discrimination? And our New York State Education Department, um, following the lead of and, and the sort of drafting of a lot of the material from many advocates and people in the community who are working directly with students uh, and have been for a long time, you know, we have a guidance document that's part of your materials that lays out NYSED's version of, they call it legal guidance, which is great. It's a strong, stronger way than they previously framed it. Um, uh, indicating sort of like, okay, let's give more specific examples. Here's what's not, a, you know, here's what would be a prohibited form of discrimination. And it goes through and it says really helpfully, you know, when someone asks for access to facilities consistent with their gender identity, you give it to them. You cannot force them, which is, you know, we've had clients in this situation. You can't force a trans student to use a single user facility and sort of single them out in that way. That's something a lot of school districts were doing um, prior to this guidance and in violation of the law. Um, in addition to the human rights law, I'll just say very briefly, we have a thing called the Dignity for All Students Act, DASA. Um, it passed in 2010, became effective in 2012. It creates a little bit more of a robust set of expectations, um, creating some affirmative obligations for school districts to avoid a hostile environment, to um, have processes for uh, taking complaints um, and uh, you know, DASA is interesting in that it doesn't necessarily have a mechanism for you to go into court to vindicate your rights under it, private right of action. Um, and so compliance with it is something that you hope a school will do. And if you are faced with non-compliance, you, you go to the, you know, you go to NYSED, you try, you try and achieve it. Uh, it, it is a somewhat limited um, utility when you want to like go vindicate your rights in court. Um, other than New York State human rights law, we have a thing called New York State Civil Rights Law, Section 40C, which creates sort of parallel protections. Um, we also have federal statutes um, that, you know, Title IX most prominently, that prohibit discrimination um, from educational institutions on the basis of, among other things, sex. And very happily, we now have a Supreme Court decision uh, in the Bostock case from just a few years ago um, in a parallel context of Title VII, which is the federal statute that prohibits workplace discrimination on the basis of sex, um, we have the Supreme Court saying that discrimination includes discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. So, you know, the, the issue of Title IX has not yet gone back to the Supreme Court, but courts are routinely interpreting Title IX's protections and the federal government under the current administration in guidance documents has said very explicitly that Title IX prohibits schools from um, discriminating against students on the basis of gender identity and expression, and has laid out somewhat similar guidance to what I was talking about coming from NYSED on the federal level, which again is really helpful. Um, 
you know, I think some of the challenges we face, I'll allude to these because we're going to talk about them more in the future, is, you know, people seeking carve-outs um, <laughs> from these types of robust protections, whether it be religious institutions or schools uh, that say we don't have to follow anti-discrimination laws or we, you know, even if they apply to us, we should be granted a constitutional exemption from them um, because we are sort of uh, framing our intention to discriminate uh, as something that is uh, required by our religious beliefs or consistent with our religious beliefs. And it would be either an infringement of our uh, constitutional sort of free expression rights or sorry, free uh, exercise rights, um, or it would be somehow compelling us to speak, again, this is like First Amendment stuff, um, against our principles. Um, so that's one threat that is, you know, to the extent there's a federal carve out against discrimination laws that says certain entities or certain individuals, when they raise a religious objection or a speech objection, for example, um, you know, says they don't have to follow otherwise neutral and consistently applied anti-discrimination laws, that would affect people in New York because it would create a federal constitutional carve-out. Similarly, you know, one other threat I'll just flag is there have been cases brought by cisgender students and their parents in districts or jurisdictions where there is what we would call, I think, good, lawful, protective policies that say things like what the NYSED guidance says. Transgender students, TGNCI, TG, NBNCI students, you know, should have access to X, Y, and Z facilities, et cetera, and you can't discriminate against them. We have these cases where cisgender students and their parents are arguing that that policy violates their rights under Title IX or under the Constitution um, by discriminating against them on the basis of sex or by violating their privacy rights, for example, um, arguing that it should be unlawful under the constitution for them to have to share a space with a transgender student. Happily, these are cases that have generally failed across the country, but they are working their way up through the federal courts. And so to the extent those types of arguments ever gain purchase, um, or if the Supreme Court were to you know, articulate a rule that validates some of those arguments, that would also affect a place like New York and prevent us from having the most protective types of rules and laws that we currently enjoy. So those are some threats. Um, and on the flip side, some protections that we do have. So <clears throat> Bria, Julius, you know, the one of the things I'm thinking about if I'm working with the populations that you're working with, uh, how am I perceiving the, the law as a shield uh, you know, how much am I thinking, okay, the law in New York is here to help me? You know, what, talk. can you talk a bit about what you're seeing and what you're hearing with, with the individuals you're working with? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, intersex students are uh, experienced discrimination um, in educational setting, settings due to their intersex traits. And uh, I'll just, I'll just be really frank and, and, um, and also share a little bit about my own personal experience, because I, I think it's great that we have laws and policies in place that are meant to protect us, but we know that in reality, um, it, they, they don't, you know, they don't protect us from being discriminated against. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I guess that's just what I'll say. And, and just reminding folks that intersex people are, are being affected by uh, these anti-trans bills that we see popping up, um, the bathroom bills, the sports bans, um, the, the, um, 
uh, banning affirming gender affirming care. A lot of these bills um, have really explicit um, exceptions, unfortunately, allowing for uh, non-consensual surgery on intersex children. And so we just just don't forget about intersex people in your in your uh, your advocacy work and your policy work, please. Um, I think that that's all I have to share about that. Julius, anything? Yeah, no, I, I feel like I can really echo um, what Bria had shared, um, that youth really face an atmosphere that lacks true inclusion and representation. Um, nationwide studies have found that transgenders uh, individuals face higher rates of unemployment, workplace discrimination, harassment, and other violations. Um, but what is a solution to that um, would be continuing to conduct statewide surveys, um, such as that um, was uh, conducted in 2022 with the Department of Labor in consultation with the Division of Human Rights. Um, and this survey targeted the lived experiences of the trans community. And this type of data and surveys assist in furthering legislation that could be drafted to specifically tailored um, to the experiences of trans New Yorkers and further protections. Um, from the experiences such as Bria had mentioned. And Lisa, you know, from your vantage as an academic sort of overseeing, well, both working in an educational environment and presumably studying parts of it as well, uh, how do you see this rolling out? Hmm. I, I like to, to be optimistic about things, but sometimes it's hard. Um, just to be honest, so I'm a cynical optimist. Um, there's a, a lot of minds that need to be changed. Um, and, a, and that's going to be really hard because this is all tied, I mean, the all the rights for queer folks is tied into the reproductive rights. I mean, it's all coming from the same pot and, and trying to minimize, and, you know, and the, the, you know, anti-Black Lives Matter folks, like these are all mixed together and, you know, just trying to minimize the rights of already marginalized folks and, and racialized folks. So I would, I'm not sure. I mean, mm. maybe in New York, there's a better chance, but in Texas here, we're, we're going backwards in my view. Mm. Well, and I'm thinking, I wonder if anyone on that note can point to what are, what are the real successes that uh, we have experienced in the in the last few years. What is there? What comes to mind when you think about? Well, okay, here's something that really has made a difference, or here's something that can make a difference. Is there anything that comes to mind for each of you, Bobby? Sure. Yeah. Bright spots. I mean, I think it, I I can't overstate how helpful the NYSED guidance was when it first came out in 2015, and now that it was updated this year. Mm -hmm. um, we were fielding intakes regularly from students around the state saying, this is what's happening to me. I'm being denied access to X, Y, and Z. And we were being forced to litigate those because school districts were saying, you know, sue us. We don't think we're violating the law. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really hard for people to have access to lawyers who would do that. You know that there are, for every one person who finds us, there are, you know, 20 others who are not able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but like once the get the guidance came out, we have not had to litigate a single case in New York State on this issue. School districts have certainly violated students' rights. Students have come to us; they've come to others. Um, but when confronted with this guidance, 
we have yet to see a district that hasn't backed down on at least these basic principles. As, as Julius and Bria and others have noted, issues that are tougher about hostile environments, about not addressing or addressing in an unequitable way, um, students' complaints of harassment, and like those are tougher issues that many school districts have not satisfactorily addressed, but on some like very big major things that were keeping students and people that we knew and we were trying to represent from like attending school or feeling mm -hmm. like they could mm -hmm. exist in the space. Mm -hmm. This was a huge change. And having that, you know, when guidance exists from the state down, that allows, that gives more people access to their rights and a little bit more clarity. Um, it's not perfect, but it, I, I thought that was a really meaningful thing that happened. And, um, I, and I apologize for not knowing this, but I, Bobby, do, do you know how that happened? You know, what was the process? Can yeah. you talk us through that? Because and maybe there's folks on this call who are from out of state or who are interested in, in doing this kind of ag advocacy work. Like, how did we get there? What happened? Yeah, others should speak up because I, I suspect others have been involved. But like, you know, I showed up on the scene in 2013 and there was already a longstanding effort from community members, from former students who had been affected, from parents um, who had been trying to get the ear of the state education department, anyone who would listen about what was happening. And from that and from a sort of receptive audience that sort of showed up at NYSED at some point, there were, you know, it was onerous, it was painful, it was full of, you know, it's like, but it was also incredibly empowering to a lot of people who participated. There were working groups, there were listening sessions, there was, you know, a tour around the state by NYSED of sort of like what was happening on the ground while there were lawyers and allies and advocates trying to give them draft language and saying, here's an example of what's happening in other states. You can poach this language. You're not the first to do it because California just did X, Y, and Z. Look at what the federal government guidance just put out. It, it is a combination of all of these types of advocacy and trying to get something to stick and getting the best version of what they were willing to sign their names to. Mm -hmm. um, and then it became a, you know, a matter of saying, well, now you need to make it better. Look all that's happened since 2015. It's outdated. Do X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z to make it stronger. Also make it a regulation instead of just a document. Like th those are the types of pieces of advocacy that a, a whole community of people across the state was involved in and that that's sort of what it took here. And all credit to NYSED for being really, really committed ultimately to making a, a very strong document. Thank you. Julius, did you have something you wanted to add to that? I, I wasn't sure if I were missing that mark or not. No. Other comments on, on that? Um, well, it's a nice transition to our, our next section, um, looking at basically where do we go from here uh, and the future of all of this. Bria, uh, can you share a bit about Interact's priorities in terms of changes to the law, regulations, uh, and institutional policies? This kind of, I think, goes very nicely right after what Bobby was just talking about is sort of, okay, what, what, what are we yeah. trying to do here? How can people, folks help? How can they learn? How can they get involved? Yeah, it's not, it's not all bad. I... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Finn, here we um, go. You know, so I'll, I'll just start by sharing some really exciting news um, that yesterday, literally last night, uh, New York actually became the first state in the nation uh, to pass legislation that will develop an outreach program to help uh, raise awareness about the medical interventions uh, that intersex children are subjected to. 
uh, in hopes that it will lead to a future where intersex kids are able to receive care that's affirming and compassionate. And uh, a similar um, um, bill was uh, passed, uh, I think, two years ago uh, at the city level. And so, you know, there's some some good things happening, all things to to folks who who are doing the advocacy work on the ground um, uh, as well. And you know, uh, as as Bobby was mentioning, you know, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act and Title Nine both make it really clear in its interpretation that discrimination on the basis of sex uh, includes discrimination on the basis of a person's intersex traits, because discrimination against intersex individuals is you know, similarly motivated by the perceived differences between an individual's specific sex characteristics in their sex category, either identified as uh, at birth or, you know, at a later time. Discrimination on anatomical or physiological sex characteristics, such as a person's genitals, their gonads, their chromosomes, their hormone function, um, is inherently sex-based. Uh, and discrimination based on intersex traits may also involve sex stereotypes. Uh, uh, as intersex people, by de by definition, we have uh, traits that don't conform to the stereotypes about, you know, what quote-unquote male or quote-unquote females or uh, bodies are supposed to look like. And so, again, uh, really grateful for the, the lawyers that helped me make sense of all of these um, bills, these regulations, their interpretations, because again, as an intersex person, it's important for me to know how these things affect me directly. Um, in addition, Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, is, is that right, prohibits sex uh, discrimination on the basis of a person's sex characteristics, including intersex traits uh, in federally funded health programs and activities. And so, you know, things are happening and I, I, I really do appreciate the opportunity to, to mention uh, that there is some good, good, yeah, there's I some joy. Just, <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, I, you know, in keeping with the trope that's out there right now, like, there is, in fact, radical joy that can happen uh, within the community, although sometimes it can be challenging. Uh, Julius, feel free to, to jump in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, though there is joy, I, I do want to bring up um, that the current issues um, that I'm met with with the community members um, that walk in our door is the limited access to doctors, nurses, health professionals, and healthcare facilities that are truly inclusive and safe for the trans community to seek and receive care. And the disparity of healthcare delivery due to provider bias leads to care never being received or news being delivered too late. Um, we have to remember you're a transgender male may still need a uterus or a gynecological exam or pap smear. A transgender female may still need a prostate uh, uh, exam um, and lab testing. And when insurance companies um, don't have experience processing claims for these type of procedures, problems can arise due to pre-authorization delays, denials, and things like that. So a recommendation um, I would have would be to grant the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, WPATH, like I briefly mentioned um, before, the ability to oversee and enforce its guidelines. And WPATH is a international multidisciplinary professional association whose mission is to promote evidence-based care and education, research, public policy, and respect to transgender health. And one of the main functions of, w, of WPATH is to promote the higher standards of healthcare for trans people, um, for trans people throughout the standards of care, making their guidelines enforceable would allow 
for increased training for doctors. Um, and this, of course, would lead to better education for the parents to make a, a better informed decision for their child's care. Other thoughts? Joe, any, uh, anything you'd like to add? You know, from my sort of like words of advice, I guess, to any attorneys in the audience who may be representing clients or, um, you know, be approached by clients who, who have legal needs, um, you know, it kind of goes back to one of the things we talked about early in this process is just, you know, being informed about the law, of course, um, you know, as any attorney needs to be anytime they're representing a client, but also sort of additionally being informed about the dynamics and the issues and the concerns. I mean, we scratched the surface today about, you know, how many different um, problem areas and logistical issues and practical problems, um, you know, facing these communities. And I think that in order to be able to really effectively be able to represent someone, even if it's, you know, just a, to, a, a simple example of a, not a simple example, but, a, you know, a custody case, the, to understand the dynamics because, you know, I, 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 the sort of an analogy that sort of comes to mind is I, in my legal career, also done a lot of work with um, survivors of domestic violence. You can't really effectively represent a survivor of domestic violence if you don't understand the dynamics of domestic violence. You can't really effectively represent someone who is a member of the transgender community if you don't understand the issues and the dynamics that they're facing separate and apart from, you know, what does the law say about custody about? So, you know, being able to, um, you know, avail yourself of opportunities to, you know, whether it's CLEs like this, whether it is other sorts of trainings, you know, there's, there's tons of organizations that offer, um, you know, in diversity inclusivity trainings, not that that's completely parallel, but just sort of uh, reaching out to organizations and, you know, individuals in the community who are, you know, and, and if you're, you're, you're approached by a client with, you know, these types of concerns to sort of take it upon yourself to, to make sure that you are educated about the dynamics. And part of it comes from talking to your client and understanding what, you know, their concerns are and what barriers they've been facing and, um, you know, try to really get an understanding of some of these dynamics. Um, you know, separate and apart from the legal stuff. And I think that that will make attorneys who are working on these types of cases, you know, particularly like the ones that are involved in litigation and on the grounds, not like high level policy stuff, but like you're in court representing an individual who is in need of assistance, being able to be a better advocate, being able to better articulate what the issues are that, that they're dealing with. Um, so, you know, I, that takes extra work. Right. And that takes a lot if it's, you know, it, it, it's extra effort that goes into making sure that you really understand the, the situation that your client finds themselves in. But I think that it is sort of an invaluable part of representing clients. Um, and so, yeah. I, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Did I cut some yeah. um, Lisa, this is a little off script, but I just had this question come to me and I'm curious. Uh, you feel free to not answer at all. But I was thinking, you know, if you could uh, have one day just appear in a courtroom where you are giving a lecture to a judge or to an attorney, um, 
what would be some of the things that you would like to sort of profess and get out there from your perspective and what your all of your research and everything? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That's a huge question. <laughs> you know, what I guess maybe the same thing that I say when I, I teach a lot of medical students, nursing students and, and clinical staff is just recognize the humanity in everyone. And let's stop having these like little turf wars and whatever else, but just we're all humans. We're all trying our best. Like let's work towards that. Um, so that's the optimistic side of me. And I would say something something similar. Um, mm -hmm. See everyone else as a human, and then if you do that, we can move forward. Like we can, you know, have laws that support all sorts of folks. Mm -hmm. So almost a human first perspective. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing I, I, I'm stricken by in this, <laughs> it feels like it's like a. A tour of the world in the past hour, twenty minutes only. We just covered, you know, education, healthcare, children, adults, um, basically just everything. Quick, quick, quick. And and I have a list here in our notes that I think this is just from the legal perspective alone. And thanks, Shell, for this. Um, some examples like Family Court Act Section six fifty nine added: no court may admit or consider a finding of abuse based on parent guardian support of child seeking gender affirming care as evidence. You know, so these very specific details, executive law section 837 added, prohibits cooperation with certain out of state investigations and law enforcement agencies regarding lawful gender uh, affirming care performed in the state. You know, there's another one, civil practice laws and rules section 39119 amended prohibiting on issuing subpoena in connection with out of state proceedings. You know, so I think even we're talking about these, these big uh, concepts, right? Education, healthcare, but then within each, including the legal field specifically, we're really drilling down to, okay, so here's what's currently in place. Is there something we can do? Can, is there an amendment, right? How is New York law going to engage with out-of-state laws, uh, choice of conflict issues? So there's this whole host of other issues that are coming up. Um, I, somebody mentioned the pre-authorization and, and how that could really impede uh, care for those who really need it. Um, and so I guess it's more of a comment than anything else, but on that note, is there any area that any of you see, like this is an area of the law or uh, that that could use more attention, that could use some more advocacy and and this is broad open question, you know, so whether it's something like the CPLR, the CPL, or if it's training for attorneys, CLEs, anything that comes to mind that you think, I want to get this out there. So the 60 people on this call could maybe pull together a group and start working on it. I mean, the the one sort of specific example that comes to mind and just is on the top of my mind because I am sort of dealing with a case like this right now that I'm, I'm happy to talk a little bit about. Please, uh, thank you for that. Yes. No, of course. So so one of the, you know, the gender, like just to, to give an example of, you know, the best of intentions, right? The Gender Recognition Act, one right. of the things that it does is it provides a mechanism for when an adult or a child has a, a legal name or sex designation change that it creates the ability for them to request that the court seal those records so that they're not available to the public. Um, in Prior to the Gender Recognition Act, the court could seal records of a name or a sex designation change proceeding if there was a, some sort of safety risk posed to the applicant 
if their records were a matter of public knowledge. The gender recognition specifically in directed judges to consider a person's transgender status as a reason why the records could and should be sealed. It doesn't mandate that the records be sealed for a transgender applicant, but it says that the courts need to consider that as a factor when reviewing a request to seal records. So recently I had a case where my clients were the parents and they filed a petition on behalf of their teenage child. The court granted the application to change the child's name and sex designation as it had to under the law, but it denied the request for the seal. And essentially the, the court said, you know, the interests of the public outweigh the child's interest or the parent's interest in having these records be sealed, um, which is ridiculous. So that is up on appeal right now. It hasn't been decided yet, but that's sort of an example of like the Gender Recognition Act, you know, tried to sort of address this concern to make sure that these records could and would and should be sealed. Um, but then we have this judge and I don't know, you know, like not in, not to speak for what's going on in the judge's mind, but for whatever reason, this judge made this particular decision. Um, and so, you know, I'm hoping for some positive case law we'll see in a couple of months, I guess, but I'm hoping for some positive case law from the appellate division on this particular issue as to, you know, why, what sort of possible public interest could outweigh the safety concerns and the privacy concerns of this child. And we cited to, you know, specifically like these were concerned about a lot of the things that we talked about today. If this is a matter of public record accessible by a Google search, is this child going to be subjected more so to bullying? Is this child going to, when this child applies for college, is their, you know, roommate going to find them on a Google search? Is the college, uh, you know, admins, the admissions person going to applicant and is it going to impact their college admissions is it going to impact their you know being on a sports team in the future you know you're forcibly outing this teenage child through publishing this private confidential information and so we're hoping that by sort of citing all of it again trying to educate the court as to here's all of the possible ramifications the real life ramifications to this child from having this information be publicly available um so anyway, we're, we're hoping for some, some positive case law on that particular issue. Um, but, you know, it's just an example of, of, it was definitely progress, right? The GRA is great. It's done a lot of great things and made the process better and, and easier for everybody. But, you know, there's yeah. like, always things that need improvement. So. <laughs> if and I'm I sure we, oh, sorry, Chelle, go ahead. If I may interrupt, actually, this is a perfect segue into our second code word. Ah. Um, our second code word for those of you looking for continuing legal education credit is privacy, um, which Joe had mentioned, you know, the privacy of, of a child, right? Um, again, that code word is privacy. Please make sure you write that down because memories can, you know, happen. They can fall apart. <laughs> um, thank you. I suppose I do. I guess I should have asked that a while ago. Is there other litigation uh, we should be looking or following? Um, are there other legislative acts that are happening that folks should be aware of that haven't been talked about yet? Bobby? <laughs> sure, yeah, there's a lot, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so I guess on a couple different things that I previously spoke about, right? Like 
these things that are percolating up in jurisdictions outside of New York that might affect us by creating carve outs. You know, there are cases working their way up on the question of sort of how Title IX and how the Constitution, specifically the Equal Protection Clause, you know, protect transgender, gender nonconforming, non-binary, intersex students in schools. Um, there is now a circuit split, unfortunately, after some great circuit court opinions uh, that were sort of very affirming of uh, trans students' rights in schools um, and very specific about the types of protections they were entitled to. Um, the 11th Circuit has since gone the other way. Um, and so now there, you know, it is likely that a case like that is going to go up before the Supreme Court on this issue of access to facilities, um, et cetera. So that's something to be aware of. We don't know yet which case and, and when that might happen, um, but that has been happening and, and will certainly affect the rights of, of students in New York. Um, similarly, you know, there are a number of cases about the rights of religious institutions or individuals um, to have some sort of exception to non-discrimination laws that will affect people in New York. Uh, there's a case that's part of your materials that has worked its way up through New York state courts um, in a sort of very weird and interesting procedural fashion um, where a group of students at Yeshiva University um, sought to uh, create an LGBTQ uh, group, uh, like a school club that was recognized on the same footing as other school clubs um, and was denied um, and brought a case under New York City's uh, somewhat more robust than than our state law, um, civil or human rights law, saying that that's a form of discrimination um, that's prohibited. Um, and Yeshiva argued first that they shouldn't be subject to the anti-discrimination law at all um, because they are entitled to a statutory exemption for certain religious institutions. And second, if they were subject to it, then there's a constitutional problem and they should have a constitutional right um, to uh, essentially be exempt from from that provision of the, the anti-discrimination law. Um, that's a case where the trial court, so we're talking state level, New York state trial court in New York County, um, granted the students a preliminary injunction saying that they had won and that the anti-discrimination law did apply uh, and that the school had to recognize their club. And Yeshiva sought expedited review from the appellate court, the first department, um, and was denied sought expedited review from New York State's Court of Appeals, the highest court, and in fact, did it in a procedurally improper way. So it was denied on, on sort of procedural grounds. And instead of remedying that, went directly to the United States Supreme Court and said, please address this now um, and, and hear our case. Uh, you know, we are subject to the imminent harm of having to recognize an LGBTQ students group. Uh, and you should take this case, despite the fact that it hasn't worked its way through any state court. Um, and by a single vote, the Supreme Court did not take that case um, and, and popped it back to the, the state courts. Um, and because the students um, agreed to essentially stay their rights under the preliminary injunction, so they are not being recognized, there is no longer justification for it to be sort of speeding its way through courts, but it is now working its way up through New York State's courts. Um, and this is the kind of case that could affect and could create educational carve-outs, um, for, uh, for non-discrimination laws um, and other types of carve-outs for entities that allege that they have a sort of religious objection to recognizing the rights of, of their LGBTQ students. Um, 
So that's the kind of thing that we're concerned about. We also included in your materials, I'll just say it briefly, sort of related types of arguments from individual, either teachers or school district members who essentially have argued that being forced to undergo anti-discrimination trainings that are required by the school district um, violates their constitutional rights to free exercise of their religion and or free speech. Um, and we've seen cases in other jurisdictions where teachers are essentially saying things like respecting a student's pronouns violates my free speech rights. Um, so in the chat, thanks, Chell, the Zidunsky case is the one in the Second Circuit where we happily got a, a good result there, rejecting uh, a school district employee's arguments, um, although it was sort of messily presented and, and certainly might raise its head again. Um, and then we have all these cases from jurisdictions around the country where teachers are making some of these very insidious arguments about not having to respect sort of students' rights in their classroom. So those are things to watch out for that are certainly very concerning and could affect us in New York as well as people around the country. I want to, I have two questions. Uh, one, kind of flipping gears completely, going to Bria and Julius, you know, if you think about, you have a, an audience, kind of like I was saying, but we have an audience full of lawyers. What do you want to say to those who are working potentially with clients who are within this demographic? Like, you know, we have these giant issues again, but it, we also have the individuals that are going and seeking, you know, not just gender affirming care, but also legal care. And is there anything, any message that you want to get out for our practitioners today? Um, I really, oops, sorry. I really enjoyed your question that you raised before about what could you say to a judge um, to inform them about like a particular case. And um, it, for me, that really raises the point of um, Kimberly Crenshaw's um, uh, theory of intersectionality, right? So how are we having true, um, reasonable judgments and judging folks um, in this way if there is lack of, of education of folks experiencing under this law? Um, so that was a point I was I really wanted to raise. Thank you. I, think I just want to jump on that. That is, I don't know if that's included in the materials, but I think that would be a good. Oh, yeah. 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 Sure. Sorry. Um, Bria, do you have do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of my very first time testifying uh, and uh, hearing as uh, a member of Interact's youth youth advocacy program. I was terrified um, and, you know, it was the first time I really had the opportunity to share my story publicly in that way. Um, and I just completely felt disregarded. I mean, I just was so vulnerable um, and it just felt like um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the things that needed to to happen in order for, unfortunately, the the enforcement bill attempts that we've tried to pass in California have not been successful. And so this was the hearing um, that I was testifying in. And unfortunately, like others have said, due to the lack of awareness and education and just like general understanding about intersex issues, I don't think that I, I experienced a lot of trauma, I'll just say, around sharing my testimony in that space publicly and to just have it completely disregarded in the way that it was. I was not prepared for that. Um, I didn't know how any of it worked because it was my first time sharing public testimony in that way. Um, but, you know, 
intersex issues, unfortunately, at least in the U.S., um, are really only seen through a medical lens. Um, and, you know, there is very little humanity. We are not really seen as full people. Um, and we're not really seen, honestly, outside of the body parts that we have. And throughout history, you know, as I mentioned, we sort of left it up to the, the medical institution, the doctors to really define what's considered to be quote unquote normal and what's in need of medical intervention. And so understanding inter intersex issues is first and foremost a human rights issue. I think it's like the biggest, you know, thing I, I would like people to know. And uh, we can talk about how we deal with human rights uh, in this country if we want to go there. But, um, you know, again, we're talking about bodily autonomy, bodily self-determination, because I know for me and for many of my intersex peers, gender affirming care is not always affirming for intersex people. What I would like to be able to do is just have the right to say, this is what I want my body to look like. And I would like to be able to make informed decisions about my health care. I would like for, you know, information to be shared with me in a way that's accessible for me so that I'm not feeling overwhelmed and I'm not feeling helpless and hopeless. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that that's what I will leave folks with. You know, that's a uh, thank you for that for so many reasons and for continuing to be vulnerable <laughs> in light of the fact that sometimes, you know, it, it. I don't think that some things ever get less vulnerable and it, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, it, it, to share these things, but this is, I do think, how we move the needle in a different direction. And your question or your answer also made me bounce back to a question I had earlier, which is, Joe, Bobby, I don't know if you could talk about when you have um, a youth who has very strong feelings and opinions about what is right for that individual, and it conflicts with parents. What is the state of play in New York right now? How does that, is it on best interest analysis? Is it um, overrun by something else? Are, are, are there any trends at all right now? I mean, I can just sort of talk generally. Um you know, if, if to, to, to sort of put this in like in the context of an example to try to make it kind of a bit understandable, if we're talking about a situation where there is a minor who is looking to receive um, some sort of gender affirming care, for example, and a parent or parents be supportive, um, you know, like we talked about before in, in custody cases, the standard is very vague. Right. And there's no there's not like a, a standard of how a judge decides a custody case when the child is trans versus when the child is cisgender. Like it's all this, it's all the same. Right. And so there's so much that goes into like the lens of the judge, the lens of the attorneys, the lens of the assigned attorney for the child. Um, in any case involving minors in family court, they have attorneys assigned to represent them. And the role of the attorney for the child is to essentially advocate for the child's position. So if you have a child, particularly an older child or a teenager who has a very strong position that they want the court to be aware of, the role of the attorney for the child is to advocate for that position. That is only as effective as the attorney for the child is in advocating that position to the court. And so if you have an attorney for the child who is clueless about these types of issues and doesn't bother to figure it out, the child's perspective isn't really being heard. Um, you know, 
hopefully one or both of the child's parents may also be supportive and the court is also getting that information from another from another angle but you know there may be afc's attorneys for children in the audience and so another thing you know if anyone that is listening does represent children in family court or otherwise um you know this is whether you make it a point to work with members of this community or not may um and you may have a client who is assigned to you a child client who you know, is transgender or intersex or non-binary or whatever sort of umbrella they fall under. And it is important in just like representing your adult clients to make sure that you sort of inform yourselves, whether it's through reaching out to other organizations, like through some of the folks here, just to, to make sure that you understand what your client, what their experience is, because otherwise, again, you can't really adequately represent them. So the hope and the idea and sort of the aspirational idea is that yes, the the wishes of the child and the position and the experience of the child would be made known to the court through their court appointed attorney. Um, but again, it sort of then comes down to how effective the people are. And the in, interpretation thereof and right. And what lens it's coming through and their yeah. experiences and knowledge and all that type of stuff, which is right. Anytime it's, you know, that, that is what makes all of it difficult. I, you know, I, I want to be mindful of time and definitely leave time for questions and answers. So I, I think maybe I'll finish with this. Is there one uh, piece of material that you want to be sure to highlight that you have submitted um, as part of the CLE and, and what is that and, and why is that? Or or anything else for that matter. If there's a closing, some you know something that's a little bit more salient to you, uh, maybe to start with you, Lisa. If you have anything, I feel like I. Gosh, pressure. Um, I mean, I think continue to be humble and continue to be curious, and that's the way I think we're going to all continue to learn and grow. Julius, how about you? Yeah, I, I completely agree. From a community-based um, perspective, the attendance of everyone here today is most noteworthy. And as an advocate, I'm always asked the question, what advice um, can I give for um, people to show up or perform allyship for the transgender community? And it all starts with interest in obtaining more education and information on the various populations to improve our cultural humility. Um, because we're all in the business here of helping people, regardless of where you lie in and in, in industry. So thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. How about you, Bobby? Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously I think you should read the NICID guidance. I talked about it a lot. I think it's really strong and gives you a nice overview of a bunch of issues, but honestly, I, I'd, I'd encourage folks to read and experience as much as you can in the voices of youth themselves. Uh, I think, you know, good to know the law, good to know sort of like the, the legal framework around that, but hearing the you know, the stories of people's experiences is is much more powerful than anything you could sort of learn by reading cases uh, or um, or legislation um, and gives you just like a much better understanding of people's lived experience and what their priorities are uh, and how it should be shaping any advocacy you want to do and how you should sort of be following the lead of the people who are affected and who you're trying to help. Um, I don't think we put it in the materials like the, the NYCLU put out 
um, a report it's been a few years ago uh, or since uh, about the Dignity for All Students Act, but it was just a series of stories of students in New York and what what it was like to be in their schools. Um, and I'm happy to share the the link. Uh, but things like that, uh, I think, are key to, to having a real understanding of what advocacy looks like and what allyship looks like. Thank you. Maria? Yeah, you know, please check out our website. We have a ton of resources on our website. And the thing is, um, oftentimes intersex people come to us and non-intersex people come to us looking for the resources and we have to create it. So please, please go check out our website. And also I would recommend reading uh, this summer three intersex people release memoirs. And so if you're interested in hearing more of those personal narratives, please um, check out uh, the the memoirs uh, from intersex folks. And also there's a really great documentary called Everybody. Um, it follows the experiences of three intersex people. Um, I would highly recommend that folks check it out. It's available everywhere you can stream uh, videos and yeah. How about you, Joe? You know, I, I really agree with everything that everyone else just said, um, you know, particularly, you know, I agree with, with Bobby's interpretation that, you know, there, there's lots of good, like written materials out there. And of course, you know, if, if speaking to attorneys who may be representing clients in, in, in legal cases, that is all important, but there is no real substitute for actually understanding sort of the day-to-day -day and lived experiences and what it is you're going into court to advocate for and why. And there are, you know, like organizations available and there are experts and there are providers and the, the assistance is out there. So it, it, you know, it's just a matter of taking the time and taking the interest in availing yourself of, of getting that information, watching the documentaries and talking to the organizations and, and, and listening to your clients and trying to, to sort of really fully understand the the practicals. And I, you know, I, I, everyone is busy, I understand. And, but, but in order to really effectively be able to, to take on the legal issues, um, you know, there, there's, there's this sort of underlying framework. And so I agree with what everybody says about, you know, just, just sort of really availing yourself of the opportunity to, to understand and educate and, uh, you know, not only yourself so that you can then in turn go into court and, and educate. Thank you so much. And just, you know, in closing, I was thinking to myself, from the time, if you just take the one scenario of walking into a courtroom, and, you know, I think most people are intimidated when you are in a courtroom to begin with. And then, it, you know, in higher ed, we used to talk about touch points, but so perhaps you're, you're going to be a witness and you're taking the stand and all, you know, the opportunities for being this gender, the opportunities, and opportunities obviously not in a way that it, it sounds, but for, uh, you know, from the judge to what the legal issue is to whom is representing you and how that person is comfortable or not comfortable with you. To, you know, there, I, I think that this just hits on, on so many different issues, gender affirming care, gender affirming care for whom, what does it mean? Youth, what are we defining as youth? Uh, you know, like even talking about the attorney for the child. And so that's in a case where there is an AFC, you know, and in circumstances where there is no AFC, where is the voice um, of the youth? And, and how does that uh, 
come out in a courtroom or in any of these processes, right? Um, and so I know, like I said, that we really kind of went all around the world very, very quickly today, but I was, I again, just want to say thank you. It was a pleasure to learn from each of you. And I also wanted to say, to see if Shell had anything that Shell wanted to add to um, either to the panel or provide any of her their own background on this. I, it's entirely, you know, thank you so much for organizing this. Yes, thank you. I, I feel really honored to be in community with this group right now. Um, I think, you know, you noted earlier, you know, we've got really such a range of people working on something that is complementary at so many different levels, right? Um, and, and I think that is so important um, for us to learn from each other. Oh, I hear we're having a hard time hearing me. Hopefully that's better. Better, yes. <laughs> um, what I really want to do is actually plug some of the resources that people have sent that are in your program materials. Um, Bria sent a really, really interesting um, intersex legislative advocacy toolkit um, created by Interact and the Harvard Law School LGBTQ plus advocacy um, clinic. And that is something that, Bria, you're welcome to talk some more about, but I thought it was really an interesting tool for even just learning, you know. Um, yeah, happy to just say, you know, we wanted to make sure that folks uh, on the ground feel empowered with the tools and resources they need to 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 do this work on their own. Because um, I, I think that um, oftentimes folks feel like they, you know, need to have a legal background and need to have access to, you know, all of the really amazing lawyers that we have access to at Interact. But you know. Um, it is a really helpful guide, I think, that really walks people through uh, the process. And yeah, I, I hope it's helpful for folks. Yeah, so, thank you. I wasn't sure if uh, any questions have been asked to you individually or wasn't sure if we had any. Yeah, we have no questions in the Q&A box right now. So if anyone okay. does have a question, this is last call. Um, we did have some questions that people submitted ahead of time. Okay. Um, but I really think many of you uh, answered them. Um, so there's, there's a question about, you know, how would you suggest, you know, people get their start on researching and learning? And I think many of you answered that already in, in different ways. Um, and, and if you're in the capital region, I especially want to plug in our own voices where Julius works. Um, I've attended multiple of their trainings on LGBTQ cultural competency and historical mm -hmm. trauma. Um, we actually just had uh, them do it at the law school recently. So Capital Region, highly, highly suggest, you know, reaching out to them um, and and what, as well as the NYCLU. I know that there are some, um, if you're really advocacy minded in terms of policy advocacy, legislative advocacy, there are opportunities to learn more um, as well. Um, and if you're in, if you're at Albany Law School or in the community, there will be more uh, programming and more events um, focused on trans and gender nonconforming and intersex awareness and inclusion and, and broadly speaking too. Um, next week begins Transgender Week of Awareness. Um, so on campus, our Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Office will be hosting a documentary screening of 
intentionally erased, um, a documentary centering Black transgender women and in, in conversation with Black cisgender men and kind of the dynamics that can ensue here too. So shout out to the DEI office um, and still having a hard time hearing me. Okay. And uh, Julius actually was telling me a little bit about a Transgender Day of Remembrance um, event that he's organizing. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? And then I have some housekeeping notes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so on November 20th, um, we are hosting our annual observance of Transgender Day of Remembrance, which is um, a national recognition of gender-based violence that continues to impact the transgender, gender, non-conforming, and non-binary communities. Um, specifically trans women of color who disproportionately um, have um, been murder murdered nationwide and also worldwide uh, at disproportionate rates. So the event that we will be hosting will be at UAlbany, um, funnily enough, and at the main campus. And we will be hearing from different officials, including the Deputy Director of um, LGBTQ Affairs, uh, Chanel Lopez, who is currently um, the highest um, representation of transgender um, individuals in government. So just to hear her speak and represent on a day where um, we are uplifting and highlighting the violence, but as well as the triumphs of our community. Shell, do you mind if I ask you a question? Oh, sure. <laughs> I was wondering if you had a sense of uh, whether other law schools are providing similar um, CLEs or if you've come across anything on the legal education side of things? Um, I have seen some of it, not necessarily from law schools, um, but I do see a lot of kind of community education and public education um, coming from, you know, law student groups like Outlaw. Um, we have one of those chapters here at Albany Law School. Um, the New York State Bar Association does have a couple of committees that focus on um, kind of LGBTQ inclusion broadly, um, and so they do offer trainings. There's also the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee at the Bar Association. They often do CLEs too, um, but I do encourage you to not just look out for CLEs um, because you know, then you can hear from really a, a variety of people on their experiences. And I think lived experience is also, you know, one of the most thorough educators. Um, but that's all, that's all I have kind of on that. Um, thank you all very much. Um, reminder for the attorneys looking for CLE credit, you do need to complete your CLE forms and send those to Lisa Rivage. Um, I will put her email address in the chat again, but you will, you will get an email from me after this, and I'll also add some of the resources that we've shared. And I just want to echo Shell's uh, words of thanks to all of you, and uh, not only for this program, but for all the wonderful work that you do. And uh, I, I'm learning a lot from this series of programs, and uh, it's, uh, it's really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much.